I'm David Woodshale, Director of Marketing and Communications at Amber and BGA, and you're listening to the Ambition Podcast. While physical health has been in the spotlight for years, mental health and well-being is finally getting the attention that it deserves. Deadlines, demand, and the constant pressure to adapt can wear down even the strongest of teams, and sometimes making great things happen at work takes its toll. Workplace stress not only causes a lot of lost sleep, but research shows that in the UK alone, stress is also triggering almost half of the workforce to look for an alternative job. Despite becoming a more mainstream topic, changing employer attitudes towards mental well-being is still overdue. It's time to reassess the way organisations deal with the prevention of unhealthy stress and related conditions, and also review the support that is offered for the one in four of us who are likely to be facing mental health issues at work. But how can employers break the link between pressure and stress and turn pressure into growth, engagement and performance? Well, today I'm delighted to be joined by Leslie Cooper, founder and CEO of Working Well, who is on a mission to help companies large and small to manage workplace pressure in a way that facilitates growth and development for individuals, teams and leaders, as opposed to energy and performance depleting stress. Well, hi, Leslie. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today for the podcast. I thought it might be useful if we really kicked off with you telling me a little bit about yourself and your career. Sure. Um, I started work in 1983 after graduating from UEA with a degree in English literature and linguistics. Um, I, in a way, not dissimilar actually to our, our recent grads, um, where perhaps um, one has an expectation that when you graduate with a degree, you're going to be able to walk into a job, any job, or specifically the job you really wanted. Um, I actually found it quite difficult to to find a job um, in the 80s um, because degrees were a little bit less common um, to everybody than they are now. The the general mantra was, I think you'll be bored. You know, you're actually (laughs) overqualified or for which read overeducated, because if you've got no experience in anything, um, grad schemes obviously weren't a thing in those days in quite the way that they are now, then, then it was quite difficult. So, um, I did in the end, because I feel, uh, it was better to be doing something than nothing. I finished up working for a local newspaper selling advertising space, which was definitely not what I thought I would be doing when I was studying for my degree but um and it was quite tough to be honest um but as it turns out no bad thing of course because um it actually whilst being a fairly heartless task um gave a thorough grounding in in business to business communication um and the development of client relationships how to take an idea um get someone's attention and you know paint a picture for them um which as it's turned out has been kind of really really important as my my career has developed so kind of proof of the squiggly career idea really that you don't necessarily start where you think you're going to but you can finish up somewhere else so um that's how it started for me i then from that job became a telephone sales trainer for uh, the leading market health insurer of the time and then from then on to field sales, um, national account management, sales management, and eventually um, after returning from maternity leave um, for my second child uh, onto the marketing product development department, which is where I kind of developed the interest in what has been the rest of my working life, really, which is the positive health management, as it used to be called then. And, and with that in mind, you, your organisation now is called Working Well. Could you tell me a little bit about what what you sort of do, how you came up with the idea and and the impact you really make? 
Sure. Um, my last employed role um, in the marketing and product development department was to develop a, an approach for corporate clients to better manage sickness absence. And if you can sort of imagine the time when people didn't feel about employee well-being, they do now. Sickness absence was like, well, you can't manage that, can you? That's just something that happens. You know, people just go off sick and what can you do about that except record it when they come back and rather wish they didn't do so much of it. Um, in the process of trying to put a, a program together that, that corporations could buy into, you know, a process and some tools to help them get underneath that, I had to do quite a lot of desk research, which made me much more aware, really, of the relationship that exists between uh, short-term absence and, and employee emotional health. I mean, that's accepted now. It's understood. We have to remember this is over 25 years ago. It really wasn't understood. That there was a relationship between how people feel and absence behaviour. Um, and so, you know, that kind of gave me, uh, I was interested in it anyway. I was also struggling, I suppose, if I'm honest at the time with two children and a corporate job, you know, shoulder pads and a BMW and a couple of kids to pick up from nursery, you know, presents its own challenges. And and I, I could see how people do get to a point where they're just, you know, you feel sufficiently overwhelmed to think, Actually, I don't think I'd go in there today. <laughs> um, however driven and, and, and well motivated you might be, everybody has a limit. So, um, I think it was sort of lived experience, really, and also combined with with desk research made me realise that, um, you know, there was an opportunity to engage companies in a dialogue about, you know, how to raise the well-being bar, not be quite so passive about it, but to actually see there are things that you can do to create a healthy, high-performance culture where people can keep being the best version of themselves they can be without kind of killing themselves in the process. And as it turns out, that's what employee wellbeing is all about these days. But it was it was quite novel at the time. But it was um, that's really what what gave me the idea when I traded my BMW and shoulder pads for and corporate life for a bit more control over my time um, to set up my own consulting business to, to work with companies to get that dialogue going. I think you're absolutely right in the point of well-being that it is it has moved certainly even during my career from something that you know is about welfare to something that is now a really key component of business strategy and it's it's very important to more and more employers and it is sort of almost like a thread that goes through their entire HR strategy why do you think that well-being has now I suppose moved more into the zeitgeist it's moved more to be seen as something that that's vital from a business perspective as much as an individual perspective as you've just said, I, I think it's to do with the fact that, that thank goodness, companies have, have, you know, joined the dots between well-being and performance. You know, it's no longer seen as a kind of welfare, fluffy, nice to have um, type thing. But you know, when we employ someone, the whole person comes to work, not just the bit that does the job. Um, and that means that you kind of need a whole person approach to employee well-being if you want to get consistent, sustainable high performance from people, you know, and as I've already said, really enable them to be the best they can be. And, you know, your 10 might be different to my 10, but it's still our 10, you know, so we, we need different conditions and we need different, we need different things and different support and, and, and different inspiration perhaps. But what we're all aiming for is to, is to be the best we can, we can be every day. And that, you know, I think that's a much more attractive proposition for corporations as well. Um, because it is not sort of over there so much in the box mark difficult. You know, what is it I have to do? I think there's an understanding that 
actually we do employ people and people are all different. And actually that in some respects gives us some opportunities in terms of creating the right environment for people to, to thrive rather than just survive. And that when they're thriving, so does the company. And, and I don't think it is obvious. It's always been obvious to us because it's what we do every day. But I, I think genuinely leaders are understanding of that connection and quite excited about it because of course it is the next untapped resource isn't it you know we can't employ any more people we can't afford it what we need is to make sure that every person that we have makes the fullest contribution they can make and that is only achieved when their well-being is optimal you know we've we've always got something not quite right I mean it, it would be a big ask for everyone to have optimum well-being all the time but we should be mindful that if we can keep the well-being levels high uh, then we increase the possibilities that our people can perform sustainably you know forever not just this week um, at a level that that helps the company meet its objectives but also fulfills and engages them so that it's a genuine win-win because when well-being's out of whack somebody is losing usually everybody actually so yeah. I, I think there's a real appreciation of, of that now, which is great, because it, then it becomes self-sustaining, doesn't it? Companies want to, how much more of this can I do rather than how little of this can I get away with, which may have been where we were 25 years ago. Absolutely. I love the idea of well-being being self-sustaining. I think that nobody would disagree that well-being's important and vital within a, within, a, within a business context. But I think what a lot of employers might struggle with is who owns the well-being agenda within the organization. So looking at it from the perspective of mental well-being and, and stress and anxiety, where do employers start? Is it about putting policies in place or you know, how do they how do they start addressing the sort of stress and anxiety amongst their staff in terms of helping them be engaged, happier, just feeling freer within the work environment in order to be more productive? Mm, it's a great question. I, I think the, the simple answer is that everyone is a stakeholder. It's no one person's responsibility. And, and certainly in my career, I can remember initial conversations didn't matter whether you spoke to the HR department or the welfare department or the occupational health department. Everybody else believed it was somebody else's responsibility to deal with it. Oh, that's not us. That's HR. You know, oh, and you better not get involved in that. That's occupational health area. The fact is that everybody is a stakeholder and that includes the employees themselves. So I often say to some of our clients, you know, you you could have you know, everything perfect. You could have the right policies, you could have the right procedures, you could have more support available for people to use than they could ever possibly access. They could all, you know, be invested in with the, with the, the sort of well-being resources and learning and development resources that you could give people to help them manage their well-being resources better. But if they choose not to do that <laughs> still and overcommit and work 23 hours a day and never see their families and never take any exercise and, and eat junk food and, you know, do their emails at four o'clock in the morning so they're not getting any sleep. You, they, the, the employer is going to end up in the same place as if he didn't do anything. So everybody is a stakeholder. So everyone has what we call um, distinct but conjoined responsibilities. So senior leadership have their responsibility um, you know, to to employ the right number of people, actually, you know, be, be brave about that. Sometimes we, we may have to recognise that there is actually too much work to do. 
um, however we reorganize and, and you know however resilient we become there is a consideration like is that is there enough is the demand too high so you know be brave enough to actually have that debate at a senior senior leadership level line managers obviously also have to create the right environment um, where it's possible to actually walk the talk it's no good saying oh your well-being is really important to me but then you know emailing people at 11 o'clock at night and expecting them to reply so we have to you know line managers have a huge responsibility to create the right culture for people to be able to deploy the appropriate well-being behaviors healthy high performance behaviors that you you want them to to demonstrate otherwise they're simply not going to do it you know saying it's not enough but the employee also has to exercise a fair amount of self-management um because as i've said if you if your habits are bad um for whatever reason i mean we all we, we get into bad working habits because we're very committed very engaged and and very um very committed to the goal but it's about also being mindful that we're not like computers you know you can't be on all the time and the decision to extend the working day one direction is actually potentially chipping away at the very thing that gives you stability and makes you you so you have to be quite careful if you can't ever get to do any other things than than working because they do actually under undermine your performance long term so employees themselves line managers senior managers everybody owns it and everybody has to make decisions um and and, and adopt the right behaviors to make sure that um, you get the outcome that you want because you can write a policy, but if no one's actually living it, then you're not gonna you're not gonna get anywhere. I just want to pick up on that from the perspective of the, the individual employee and, and in particular high performers because you know it's 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 quite easy to make a disconnect between people who have nice cars or nice you know seemingly nice lifestyles, nice clothes that they do well at work, they're very capable at doing their jobs, but it, it's very difficult to sort of see behind the scenes how hard they're working how many hours they're putting in um and how that's really sort of worming its way down into their their everyday lives in terms of their stress so what would your advice be to an individual you know who perhaps thinks there aren't enough hours in the day to to sort of have a work-life balance to have that well-being agenda in place while also high performing Mm, great again great question i think it starts with understanding the difference between pressure and stress for, for number one, and people use those terms as so they're interchangeable, but they're two completely different things. So, you know, if you're, everyone has pressure all of the time from everywhere, the pace of life in, you know, the modern world, modern world work is just, is just insane on occasions. And the number of demands on your attention are, are infinite. So I think that's a given. The pressure is going to come from everywhere. There's going to be more demand on you than you can probably deliver to. That's an understanding that when that pressure is um, felt to be extreme and you feel behind the curve on, on, a, on a consistent day-to-day um, basis, then you may be heading towards the outcome of that pressure, which could be stress. Um, which is always negative, by the way. People talk about positive stress. You know, in this model, pressure is an input, neither good nor bad. It's neutral. Um, and an outcome, the, the unwanted outcome, when pressure exceeds your perceived ability to handle it, we can come back to that possibly later, what those, those 
strategies might be, then you get this outcome of, of stress, which is you know not as productive and, and and certainly ultimately has consequences that are you know in the short term perhaps aren't going to kill you, but you know, they do have impacts on your on your ability to perform and, and and relate to the people around you and communicate well and all those sorts of things. When that is the case for an extended period, then you can, you know, slip down through the kind of strain zone, which is where stress starts into feeling overwhelmed. And then that's when you can become clinically unwell. So, you know, there's, there's not much to commend being stressed. There's a lot to commend being under pressure because with the right coping strategies and the right amount of awareness around, you know, what's going on, what stories are you telling yourself? What are you doing? What are your behaviors? What are your responses? then you can manage that pressure in a way that you can get the much better outcome, which is growth. And of course, you know, anybody who's in this cohort is all about growth. It's all about being the best you can be, challenging yourself, um, you know, producing good outcomes for yourself and for others. So what we want is pressure turned into growth, not pressure turned into stress. And, you know, there are there is a, a big bundle of conversations we could have around different strategies for keeping on the right side of that kind of performance curve. But the number one thing to mention, probably, if you took nothing else away from this conversation, would be about intentional recovery. And recovery is seen by many still uh, all levels in organizations as rest, you know, something you allow yourself when you're done. <laughs> um, and, and if you wanted to sort of, you know, new way of looking at recovery recovery is not rest recovery is usually switching focus perhaps every 90 to 120 minutes on something completely different in order to you know use a different part of your brain you know if you can combine that with standing up if you're doing some sitting down you know moving around and perhaps getting something decent to eat and and some some fluids these can be really really helpful um, recovery behaviors to actually give you the what you need for the next performance wave so recovery is not rest recovery is an investment in sustainability um, so that you can be as good in the next 90 minutes as you just were in the previous 90 what happens in practice is we don't do that we do four five six seven hours at a stretch <laughs> and then we step away from our computers or we come out of our endless back-to-back meetings and you know, we don't feel great. We don't feel as optimistic. We don't feel as creative. We might even be quite grumpy, actually. We might snap at somebody, which doesn't help us, you know, with our internal relationships or our domestic relationships. So they are not, a well-being strategy is not something that you kind of do in addition to your work. It has to be integrated into your work. And that's how you sustain your high performance. In fact, even enhance your performance, not just about sustainability, because you you keep yourself sharp. It's, it's the equivalent of, you know, stopping chopping down trees every 50 trees or so to sharpen the axe. It just means you, you need fewer swings <laughs> to get the tree to come down. So that, that's quite a long explanation for a very simple question, but I, there's a lot in there because I think people do tend to see it. it's like, oh, I haven't got time to concentrate on well-being. It's like, no, but it's about seeing yourself as a bundle of finite resources in, in four different dimensions physically emotionally mentally and and purposefully you know who are you and, and, and what do you want in life and seeing yourself in these dimensions and being able to have intentional take intentional steps to deploy those resources well because there is going to be more demand and there are resources so you have to just not go faster but you have to be a bit more discerning i think about 
Where are you going to make your energy investment so that you get a return on that investment? And then how do you recover it? Because otherwise it's like putting your card in the hole in the wall consistently for every hour for several hours and taking out a hundred pounds, assuming it would let you do that, which it wouldn't. But before long, the machine will eat your card, which all students will remember. So, um, so it is with, with performance, you know, you, it's not an option really. I think you know your question. <laughs> oh, it absolutely answers the question, and it wasn't an easy question because I think when it comes to to well being, it's it's nuanced and and it's individual to each person. So there's no hard and fast rule in terms of how one can increase their own well being. But I'm going to ask you another difficult question now. <laughs> in your experience in working with organisations, you must have some examples of companies or organisations that are really getting it right that are putting in place really innovative well-being strategies could you share some examples of of how that's sort of panning out in practice yeah sure i mean we we have we've been doing this for 25 years so we have been very fortunate to you know work with probably over 100 household names and and have very long relationships with some very big um, companies who you know we have developed programs with literally developed programs with i mean we we've been able to develop our thinking together um, and you know we have ideas and we build tools and build approaches and build diagnostics and things and you know rehearse them in a live environment with these clients that we have this you know kind of trusting long-standing partnership relationship with so we, we we've been very very fortunate in in that sense to be able to to grow our proposition in a in a live environment um, and most of the companies that we work with still um you know get and, and the number is growing as i said at the beginning is they get the relationship between employee well-being and employee satisfaction engagement and performance you know these things are all kind of inextricably linked so they have a lot of motivation to try new things and i think what there's lots of different things that that, that people are doing but i think what seems to be working the most consistently well and there's no surprise to me that that you know these are the programs that persist for you know 10, 15, 20 years in some cases, uh, with new things added. But fundamentally, the principle is around getting some information from employees about what it feels like to work here. But not doing this, you know, in a kind of top-down approach because most employees are pretty cheesed off with satisfaction surveys that they, you know, take 10, 15 minutes of their life to complete. And, And from their perspective, nothing ever seems to change. So the programs that we that persist and are probably the, still the most um, popular and have become even more popular in COVID, of course, because of people's kind of disconnect from each other, is creating the opportunity to ask some very simple questions that give the employees the opportunity to report, sim- put simply, where they feel their pressure comes from, um, where they they perceive perceive is really important their perception of the sources of, of pressure because it's their perception that matters because it's that's their their worldview their feelings that actually create the behavior and, and and ultimately the health outcome so what they think is really really important but to collect that information in a, a team level so they can have a conversation a safe conversation amongst themselves and with their leadership around sources you know what's coming down the pipe but also what do we tend to do you know what's our collective response to that because we're all used to kind of taking our cues from other people aren't we so 
you know, pushing back on things is a really dangerous strategy if no one else ever pushes back on anything. So, of course, what you do is you don't push back on it. So how we behave collectively, what our collective response is in terms of our internal storytelling, what we think we can and can't do, how we tend to approach problems, you know, how open we are with each other, how psychologically safe we feel around each other to be able to say, do you know what, I think this is rubbish. I don't think we should be doing it like that. I think we should be doing it like this. You know, those sorts of things, exploring these things with the team. So you're looking at both the sources and the response and then encouraging the team and their leader to do their own problem solving on that because you can't, our organisations are so big and so complex. And, and, you know, if they're global, then, you know, that's to to another end factor again, that um, the only real way to move the dial is is to change your local conditions if you can. So address the issues locally at source if you can. And if you can't, then the second, which brings you to the same place, um, if you can't change the stimulus, then change the response, because then you can you can still get a better outcome. There are certain things around certain roles. They are fixed and immovable. They are hardwired into the way that the job is. But there are many, many things that are perceived to be hardwired that are not. And so stimulating this conversation around what's going on, you know, if we're bouncing down this river, this white, it feels like we're bouncing down this white water, you know, river in a small craft and we all feel like we're going to fall out at any one minute. Let's talk about that. <laughs> what's, what's, why is the water choppy, you know, and, and can we arrange ourselves in the boat in a different way so we feel more secure? So there's, there are many variants of that principle, but um, they, we have developed very successfully those sorts of approaches with lots of companies. And they are consistently seeing that when you put teams through that process of actually identifying the well-being issues that are relevant to them, and particularly if you give the individual participants some information about them personally. So you, you know, you produce a picture for the team, these are our collective issues. But if you can also produce a picture for the individuals, for them to privately consume around how they're managing their personal energy in terms of physical, emotional, mental and purposeful and how well they recover and um, where their own individual sources of pressure come from. You've got that action planning, as we said, at all three stakeholder levels. You get the, the personal focus of having some information about yourself so you can make your own decisions about, okay, should I do something about my very poor quality of sleep or, you know, actually that's true. I I don't recover. I do extend the working day. I I do consistently give up quality time to get more and more things done at work. And, And maybe I, maybe I need to change my approach about that. The team gets some information about the things that the team can work on together because, you know, we we bounce ideas off each other and we and we take our cues from each other. So let's let's all commit to do doing this differently. Let's talk about this more. Let's you know not fill in form five B if form five B is cool is causing everyone a problem. And then also as that information builds across the organisation, you start to see where the systemic issues are. So you can target your uh, training and learning interventions in in a more focused way, and you can also start to see that actually everyone has this problem so maybe we maybe now we have some evidence not just anecdotes that we need to change the way we're doing that at a systemic level 
So they're all called different things. They're different programs. They they fit into other parts of the wellbeing strategy. But that that's a kind of consistent theme, I think, in in the work that works, which is that things are led from the top. You know, they have senior management buy-in and participation, real active engagement, not just like, yeah, yeah, we think this is important. Um, but it's fed from the bottom. It's the it's the individuals who are facing the well-being challenges every day who are given the are empowered to make changes at a local level that will help them and then i suppose in terms of of practical advice that that our listeners can take away you've co-authored two books on the subject of workplace stress and well-being so they're called managing workplace stress uh, best practice blueprint and dangerous waters strategies for improving well-being at work so i'll be just really interested to find out from yourself what what readers can expect to achieve having read these books? What sort of information is in there, and where where does it come in useful, really? Um, they, I mean, they quite they were written a while back, um, so the world of work has changed a little bit um, since they were written. But interestingly, I suppose the, the central message hasn't changed. It's really what I just said that you they are blueprints. They they give you the the kind of philosophical um, basic principles around why and what. You know, why should you be interested in managing employer well-being and what you're going to get out of it? Um, and then, you know, broadly, what should you be focusing on? Um, and specifically with this, the stress, the one that's specifically about stress is, is more really about the how. You know, what is this? How do you set up it? What sort of questions should you be asking your employees in relation to the management of psychosocial health risks, certainly in relation to, you know, how they feel about, you know, whether they're strained or overwhelmed or comfortable or bored even, um, you know, and, and how do you work with that information? How do you intervene on that information? So as it says it is a best practice blueprint because because best practice with management of psychosocial health risks is certainly built around diagnosis you know have some real information that doesn't have to be quest doesn't have to be questionnaire based but you do have to get your employees in a room and ask them how does it feel to work here because you you can't know just by looking at them um and then also how do you involve them in the decision making and, and the and the or the, the action planning really in relation to what we might do about that um because again it, it's the it's the the more consultative approach that gives employees a, a slightly more enhanced sense of control, which is half the problem very often. You know, when demands are high and control is low, um, that's when you, you can quickly find yourself in a position of it doesn't really matter how much I reorganise the chairs on this boat, it still feels like it's going down, you know, and that's that's not a very comfortable position to be in. So they are um, in, in themselves whilst a little dated, I would say, because one of them at least is, was written more than 10 years ago and the world has, has changed, um, the principles remain. Um, and there is a new one actually being constructed um, at the moment, um, which is due for publication in April, um, which will mark the 25th anniversary of the business. So it will kind of update those those books, but they still they still stand as a good primer, I think, for how to make a start and then I suppose in terms of, I suppose, closing the circle and, and, and finishing, <laughs> when we think about well-being, I mean, it's it's important, it's vital, we should be doing it. In terms of being employers, we have to ensure that our staff are as well as they can be, and we're doing everything that we can to ensure that 
But what have been some of the benefits that you've seen in your career with working with organizations in terms of if they focused on employee well-being, how that's benefited the business as much as it's benefited the individuals? Yeah, I mean, the, the organizations that have the best proof, of course, are the organizations who invested the most time in trying to get a pre evaluation into into their work i mean it is often the case and better to do something than nothing so you know but we see in a lot of companies there's a proliferation of stuff you know there's this oh we have an employee assistance program you know we do resilience training you know we have a healthy eating um mantra in our um in our cafeterias though of course these have been empty largely for the last 18 months and people have been eating junk food at their desk so um you know various accumulations of of well-being benefits and services but it's hard to assess the the value of those when you didn't really know where people started so um the organizations that have got the best proof have, have, have kind of got somewhere where they're able to uh, have a baseline before they start working with people and then, you know, measure again, um, you know, four to six to eight months later. And uh, the companies that do this the best actually have, have, have proven what we kind of know anyway, is that when you start a dialogue going around these things, particularly around energy, actually personal resource management, personal energy management, this gives ordinary people something to do you know something it breaks down a sort of seemingly difficult task of how am I going to square the fact that there's 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 more demand on me than there is you know me to go around which is a kind of general feeling that most of us have most days if you break that down into different dimensions physically emotionally mentally and 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 purposefully um and then help people give people information and and uh resources that will help them get a little bit better improving their physical energy and, and recovering physical energy and understanding the importance of recovery and understanding the impact what uh, what you eat has on your ability to actually do your job you know these things we're kind of dimly aware of but actually when you say to people you know how effective you are in the afternoon is directly related to what you fed your body with earlier on in the day you know, if you want to sustain your energy and your performance all day long, then you need to, you know, make some small adjustments to to how you feed yourself, those sorts of things. When you give people this knowledge and this training, um, then they become a bit inspired, actually, to, oh, I can see some benefits doing this, you know, that won't just involve eating isn't just about, you know, being slimmer. It's actually about having more energy and, and more, more, more me available to do all the things that I want to do outside of work as well as inside. So, and then you you give them this information, then you give them time to implement these strategies, and then you measure them again. Um, it's really obvious that you you move the dial straight away, um, which you would. But what's most interesting is that it's sustained. That these habits are so easy to do once you once you get them, once you change your natural way of going in a small way and integrate some of these other activities that will give you more chance of having healthy and sustainable high performance, then people do actually keep that going. It becomes integrated into their life. Where it gets a bit more difficult is to then prove the impact that that has on performance in terms of profitability, because there are so many other confounding variables, aren't they? So um, there is a, there is a sort of straight line relationship between improved employee energy levels and lower attrition, 
um, you know, lower, uh, higher engagement scores, those those sort of cross-cast analyses are done all the time because companies often have good engagement data. So they can see that the people with the highest well-being are also often the highest engaged. But it gets a little bit more difficult then with getting companies to have the right sort of performance data available at that level of granularity. But we know that relationship is there. And what we have been able to prove consistently, or the companies we work with are able to prove to themselves consistently is that, you know, the most um you that you can you can move the behavioral dial really, really quickly um just by giving people access to looking at these problems in a way that they perhaps haven't seen them before it's not you don't have to run a marathon you might just have to stand up now and again (laughs) it feels more doable um and therefore people are much more likely to start small and then before you know it they're 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 motivated to actually you know do a little bit more um but it is hard sometimes to get to find companies who've got the right quantity of performance data that is linkable to these these pre and post assessment what is understood though generally anecdotally but also generally is that um you know there is much we, we all know this logically anyway there's higher retention you know when when people feel overwhelmed um don't feel they can talk to their employer about how they're feeling, get burnt out, they are much, much more likely to leave. That's the only answer. It's like, I can't do this anymore. I need to leave. And that is a waste, isn't it, for them, all the intellectual property that goes with them, all the bother of having to rehire and, and all the disruption to the team. So, you know, in addition to more highly engaged and, and healthy and sustainable employees, of course, you get the additional things of, you know, lower, lower. Um, turnover, high retention, uh, better hires uh, very often. Gen X, uh, Y and Z are, are, you know, definitely looking for employers who have a slightly more flexible approach to work-life integration than, than perhaps was the case when I started work. Um, the gains will always outweigh the expense. You know, we, we you don't need to prove that. Lots of obviously financial controllers want to. Where's the evidence? <laughs> um, but we can just kind of know it in our own in our own experience, don't we? That it is the people that that make the money. So we need to you know invest in the people, the buildings and the machinery. They're important too. But it's actually the people who turn up every day and have the ideas and have the communication and connect with their colleagues and collaborate with with clients and suppliers and. Uh, other parts of the business who actually generate the income. So uh, there are many, many, many more benefits to having a, a well thought out and inclusive wellbeing strategy. You know that involves all the employees themselves in in making that happen. The the benefits will always outweigh the cost. Well, Leslie, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today, for sharing your insight and lots of practical advice that we can take away. Also, congratulations on and thank you for 25 years of Mm. helping employers and individuals to really focus on their well-being. You're welcome. Well, it's been a it's been a journey, certainly, and it, and we're not done yet. <laughs> COVID has obviously presented some some new challenges. Um, I think there's a the, the the pace of the pace of work and life was fast before March 2020, and and certainly the last eighteen months, two years have, have presented some some new and novel challenges in terms of managing employee well being. Certainly, you know, isolation, separation from colleagues. 
um, very much more difficulty than there was previously in, in policing boundaries between home and work. You know, recovery has got harder and harder to get. You used to have to perhaps get on a train to go home, which, you know, would at least be a, a change of scenery. <laughs> it might make you read a newspaper or listen to some music on your phone or something. Um, it's not uncommon, is it, for people to sit in their home offices for, you know, 10, 11, 12 hours at a time. So um, I think we've still got some work to do. <laughs> lots of work to do, lots of challenges, and I have no doubt you'll address them for the next 25 years. <laughs> Thank you very much again. And if you'd like to read more about health, well-being, stress, anxiety, pressure, and find some articles that might be of help, you can find them on our website at www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition.